Hello and welcome to Equinor's new podcast series hosted by me, James Murray, editor of Business Green. Over the course of the next six episodes, we're going to be hearing from a variety of people at the heart of the UK's energy transition, from policymakers and politicians in the northeast of England to academics and companies involved in deploying cutting-edge clean technologies. Not to mention local residents in Yorkshire and the Humber, for whom these decarbonisation projects will hopefully provide enormous economic and environmental benefits. We're going to be covering topics including the much-talked-about skills gap and how to encourage young people to take up STEM subjects. We're also going to be talking about the workforce of the future, the economic opportunities offered by tackling climate change, and taking a deep dive into the innovative technologies such as carbon capture and storage, hydrogen and many others that are absolutely critical to delivering on our net zero goals. We've had the privilege of speaking to some fantastic guests who are helping to demystify what can often feel like an overwhelming and complex subject. Starting off in this first episode, we'll be looking at how we can actually achieve net zero emissions, the role that companies like Equinor are playing in the northeast of England, and we'll be hearing from some of the companies working on the front line to deploy the low carbon technologies that will enable us to meet our climate ambitions by 2050. So where better to start than with Dan Sadler, UK Vice President of Low Carbon Solutions at Equinor, who's in charge of the company's activity in the Hull and Humber region, including its flagship hydrogen projects. Welcome, Dan. So what are we going to be exploring over the next few episodes? I think what we're trying to do really is bring a debate around the low carbon strategy to uh, a wider ranging audience. I mean, we use this term trying to get the conversation around the dinner table. So, you know, talking about that incredible transition that's required to get from where we are today to this net zero position in 2050 to really start to open up debate around different elements of that value chain, right from the technical parameters, but right through to the, the public engagement requirements, etc. Absolutely. Given that, that, that desire to sort of reach a, a wider audience, let's start with first principles. So what is net zero? What is a net zero emission economy and why are we trying to achieve it? So we're trying to achieve net zero in order to um, to really solve the challenge of climate change. So from a UK context, the UK committed under the Climate Change Act to reduce its emissions to net zero by 2050. Originally, it was by actually 80% by 2050. And that's a huge challenge. I mean, um, from 1990 levels, we probably re- removed about 50% of the UK emissions through renewable energy, through backing out coal predominantly. But you could argue the low hanging fruit has, has really been plucked. And we now need to go that extra mile so that we're not, em- we're not emitting CO2 and we're not emitting other gases into the atmosphere which cause climate change problems. But we also need to remember that, that climate change solutions need to be transferable across the globe so that if the UK are leading the way in the, U- in the transition to net zero, that those solutions are transmissible to everybody else because climate change is a global problem, it's not a, a UK-based problem in its own right. And obviously that then brings massive export opportunities. That, that's the presumably the sort of the economic argument for being able to distribute those technologies around the world. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of opportunities. Um, you know, you look at the UK uh, wind deployment at the moment, we're, we're world leading in that sector. It provides well-paid long-term jobs, but it provides an, a critically important contributor to meeting our net zero targets. If you actually look at where we need to get to now, we need to start to introduce carbon capture and storage, hydrogen production for transition and fuel switching of different end users. And with those new nascent markets, the first mover will often get the biggest benefit. 
Now, remember as well that as the global demand for things like green products grows, and you can all already see evidence of that, you, you know, you hear adverts on UK radio about a net zero car, for example. What will happen is that countries with the ability to produce truly green products, which really are associated with renewables, hydrogen and CCS enabled industrial clusters as much as anything else in the first instance, will find that there is an increased commodity value for them products and actually that they have an advantage over the rest of the world. So it's it's a great opportunity, not just for the products, but, but for well-paid um, long-term domestic jobs as well. Mm, absolutely. Why net zero? That's one of the arguments, isn't it? Why shouldn't we just be going for zero emissions? Why should we have this net concept, which, uh, for those that don't know, refers to the idea of, you know, bringing some of the any emissions that we emit, netting them off by capturing or, or soaking up emissions from the air, whether that's through trees or, or potentially technological solutions. Why should we be aiming for net and not zero, as some have said? It's a really good question, actually, and you could be you could argue that ultimately we should be aiming for negative. Uh, I think the issue is that there are there is a, a reality with the products that we make around the world and the way energy moves. And so, you know, products like cement that are critical, there will be an element of the processing to do with cement that is is difficult to capture, if not impossible, certainly with the technologies of today. So what we try to do is we'll get everything as low as possible, but then we need to be able to offset some of those very difficult emissions to abate by capturing effectively a biological form of carbon. So carbon that's naturally cycling in the environment and actually storing that. And what that does is allow us to, to offset those very difficult to abate emissions so that we can get to this effectively net zero emissions position. Lots and lots of analysis now, academic research and the like, that shows it is cheaper to act now than to wait and let the impacts hit us and get worse. Um, Which brings us to the other side of the critique of the net zero transition is that we're not going nearly fast enough and that there needs to be a lot more policy focus and investment and movement and and decarbonisation from carbon intensive businesses and the like. Um, I mean, what's your what's your view on that critique that that there urgently needs to be more urgency here and more progress? Well, the the fundamental answer to that is there needs to be more urgency and more progress. It needs to be faster. But I think that we also again have to put it into context of globally what different regions are doing. I think one of the challenges is maturing the argument to make sure that. You know, we're not just talking about one specific vested interest position. We're actually talking holistically about how you meet the challenge. So you can't just do it with renewables, for example, which is fully acknowledged in the UK through the Committee on Climate Change. The ambitions are fantastic. There's there's great ambitions to de- deploy CCS infrastructure, um, at least two clusters by the mid-20s, two further clusters by 2030, decarbonising our critical heartlands. There's very clear ambitions on developing the hydrogen economy with blue blue hydrogen, which is CCS enabled, and green hydrogen, which is renewable enabled. So I think there's very good ambitions, and they're backed up by a legal climate change act, so a legal obligation. Absolutely. Let, let's talk a little bit about the projects themselves and, and, and some of the sort of the initiatives that are coming forward from uh, Zero Carbon Humber and, and Equinor's work. Also, um, I mean, first up, for those who don't know, I mean, who are who are Equinor? Well, Equinor are a broad energy company now. We, we were a traditional oil and gas company based out of Norway, but we, we now are a growing wind major. So, for example, we're building Dogger Bank with our partners SSE and E&I, which will be the world's biggest wind farm just off the Yorkshire or the northeast coast. We built the first floating wind farm. We're building the wind farm off New York. We're also the only commercial CCS operator 
uh, in Europe, operating Sleipner on the Norwegian continental shelf for 25 years, storing a million tonnes of CO2 per annum in that scheme. And also Schnorvik, um, which has been operating since 2008. We're also building Northern Lights, which is the world's first CO2 import terminal where we can effectively bring liquid CO2 in from regions that don't have access to their own low carbon infrastructure and store it safely in the Norwegian continental shelf. The other thing Equinor are doing is, I think it's fair to say, we're world leaders in low carbon uh, solutions and specifically hydrogen ambitions, where we can use hydrogen to fuel switch from traditional fuels, both blue hydrogen and green hydrogen. And we've got an abundance of projects both across Northwest Europe and in the UK and indeed in Norway, where we're looking to pioneer those, these new low carbon hydrogen markets which will make um, some of the most significant impact on global climate change obligations. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to dig in a little bit to your, the carbon capture projects you mentioned there, because one of the big critiques of carbon capture from a lot of environmental groups and, and a concern shared by policymakers um, is that the, the argument is this is still very new technology, not proven at scale, doesn't necessarily capture 100% of the emissions or, or store them safely. I mean, there's a whole gamut of concerns based around the concept that this is still really quite immature um, and, and not proven and on the cost side not proven to be cost competitive um, I mean what's your response to that because as you mentioned there you, you have been doing it for some time it does it does exist it's not a completely kind of blueprint technology yeah that's that's correct James and I think the other thing to remember is that they're actually um, capturing CO2 and, and kind of storing it geologically has been going on for around 40 plus years. Originally, it was used for enhanced oil recovery in the oil and gas industry. Um, but obviously, um, with the climate change challenge, it, it's now being used as a pure CO2 storage option. So these technologies aren't new. Um, the well-established technologies, That one of the reasons that the oil and gas industry is so critical in actually deploying these technologies is because of our unparalleled experience in terms of the safe geological storage of CO2, for example, in the Norwegian continental shelf or the UK continental shelf. But as well as the projects in Norway, which, um, as as I've just explained, 25 years, 15 years, Northern Lights should be commissioned next year. There's also projects like Quest over there in Canada, and there is a growing demand for these projects around the world as people realise the difficulties when meeting a net zero challenge without them. How do you sort of address that concern that, you know, this is a very expensive way of decarbonising? The renewable side is super important. It's great how well renewables have gone. And as, as I mentioned, obviously, we're heavily involved in that space with Doggerbank. By the way, the oil and gas industry actually produced the world's first floating wind farms. And that was actually using its experience from oil and gas technology over the years. So that's a, a great synergy. In terms of the the costs, though, what we have to do is it's not about renewables versus CCS versus hydrogen. Actually, when you look, for example, in industrial clusters, where we're talking about decarbonising intense process industries, a lot of those can't be fuel switched to renewable energy because they inherently emit carbon as part of the process. Also, if we want to scale quickly, for example, hydrogen, where you really want to produce a lot of blue hydrogen, we need CCS systems. So what CCS does is it allows us to decarbonise hard-to-abate industries as well as accelerate in the hydrogen economy quicker and efficiently and at the lowest cost. I think there's probably 
more agreement than maybe uh, social media arguments would suggest on that idea that it needs to be a portfolio. We need to use every tool in the box. It's just that big question of how the balance is going to play out, isn't it? It's it's that fear that we could invest too much in new fossil fuel infrastructure that then we don't need that becomes stranded assets or or blow the budget. Um, but but equally, you're right. If we if we don't tackle those big industrial sources of emissions and if we don't find a way to make intermittency um, less of an issue. Uh, then we've still got a problem and we're not going to get there. It's a, it, it is a live debate and one that will run for many, many years to come. Um, let's talk about one of the things that will very much play into that debate and hopefully solve some of these issues, which is these projects that are starting to emerge for zero carbon industrial hubs. To hear more about some of the low carbon industrial projects that are starting to emerge in the UK, I spoke to Una O'Grady, who's head of hydrogen development for SSE Thermal. I asked her what SSE's involvement was in the Zero Carbon Humber project that is currently in development in the northeast of England. What is the company's involvement in this Zero Carbon Humber project? Sure. Um, so within Zero Carbon Humber, we are a, a, a very proud um, and I think active member of the Zero Carbon Humber partnership, which is uh, an initiative um, which has been very much led by Equinor um, over the last number of years to bring together all of those looking at decarbonisation around the Humber and to collaborate, knowledge share and really drive forward that agenda within the, the Humber region. A key part of Zero Carbon Humber uh, for us and for other uh, low carbon developers is what is at the core of zero carbon Humber and that's about bringing low carbon infrastructure into the Humber region and in zero carbon Humber that's by way of a dual pipeline across the the Humber region which once that is secured that then unlocks the investment activities for projects like our own at, at Keepy in the, the form of Keepy 3 carbon capture and in the form of our Keepy hydrogen suite of projects which we're both of which actually are being uh, co-developed with Equinor. So you have this sort of underpinning infrastructure that can take any captured carbon out and keep it safely under the sea, hopefully, and then everyone hope plugs into it, if you will. That's the that's the vision, and then that would attract lots of businesses that need to capture carbon to 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 the region because you have that that space that those pipelines there. Ex- exactly. So what what you therefore are, are getting is is job creation but also safeguarding of jobs because uh, the Humber is the the largest and most carbon intensive cluster uh, with 30% more carbon emissions probably than any of the other clusters in in the region so if you are going to do something you would have to do it in the Humber um, and you have to do that early um, if the government are meet, are to meet their uh, carbon uh, emissions reduction targets. It's, it all sounds absolutely fascinating. So, you, you know, you'd have, as you say, you'd have hydrogen storage, you'd have hydrogen being burnt to produce power in a clean way. And then you'd have hydrogen blending with conventional gas and capturing the carbon emissions to, to make that zero or ultra low carbon as well. You very much see this complementing those renewables, energy storage, batteries, the, the smart grids, all of this stuff coming together, but with arguably some some space there will be needed for, you know, more conventional power stations, but with the carbon capture that, that stops the emissions going out. That's the 
it, it's it's a portfolio approach, I suppose. It is. It is a portfolio approach, and it's a uh, it's all parts of that portfolio approach working together are probably going to be the the most cost effective way of delivering net zero. But I think in particular with regards to hydrogen, what I would draw out is its ability to work across sectors. So by investing in hydrogen infrastructure, you're not just decarbonizing power, albeit it may be a, a good anchor for you at the beginning of that, but you are positioning that infrastructure to be used cross-sector and to provide decarbonisation across many sectors. Mm. It's such a fascinating area. And just finally, you mentioned sort of the business model side of this and that the, the argument that this offers a, a cost-effective route to decarbonisation. Um, I mean, that's another area where there's intense debate from all sides, isn't there? You know, there's the people who don't even want us to decarbonise, say it's all going to cost too much. Um, and then people who do want to decarbonise who say actually other technologies could prove uh, m- more cost-effective. Um you know, the Zero Carbon Humber project is a multi-billion pound project. Huge, huge investment levels are going to be needed. I mean, what gives you confidence that this this can bring costs down over time and, and deliver a cost-effective route um, at a time when people are very concerned about the the end cost of energy? Yeah, I I think I'll take the 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 first part of that question. It's what what gives me confidence that we can we can do this and and bring costs down over time. I think the the example that we always point to is offshore wind. Um, so we we look at the offshore wind industry in the the UK, and we look and and see the the cost trajectory that that has taken over the last number of years and the point that we're at now. We believe that with technologies like hydrogen and CCS, that pathway can be replicated. But I think the the other part here is that these projects are not just technical projects. They're also about socioeconomic benefit. And again, we would look to the offshore wind uh, journey that they have been on, and we would look to learn lessons from that. So looking at activation of UK supply chain, um, about investment, inward investment into the UK, but also of the UK being a leader, and I, I, I can say that um, as, as being based here in Ireland, but very much looking up to the UK as a leader in this area and being able to export that know-how, that understanding, but also the supply chain uh, learnings that we have, have done and potentially locate that supply chain within the UK for export. What that means is in tandem with that investment, that is your return on your investment. That is the creation of jobs, the safeguarding of jobs, because as we work towards net zero, it is going to be a just transition and we have to ensure it is a just transition. And by investing in low carbon infrastructure, that is the the resultant return on investment for the government, is the creation of jobs, creation of, of UK supply chain expertise that can be used in the UK, but also exported. A huge thank you there to Una O'Grady from SSE Thermal. The Zero Carbon Humber project is made up of 14 partners, all of whom are involved in bringing the project to life. I spoke to another of those partners, National Grid, who are working to literally link the projects together through its carbon capture infrastructure. I caught up with Cordy O'Hara, president of National Grid Ventures, to hear more about their role. Excellent. Welcome, Cordy. Thanks so much for agreeing to speak to us today. Um, How are you involved in the Zero Carbon Humber project and and some of the wider projects going on um, on, along the East Coast? So we um, have been a founder member of Zero Carbon Humber and we've been working together with Equinor and other partners on the development of carbon capture and storage and hydrogen in the Humber region right from the start actually and um, we we do have some history 
in the development of CCUS in the region for over a decade with the White Rose project. But our role today is one as the infrastructure developer uh, for the East Coast cluster. And really, uh, we see that as the connective tissue between emitter projects across the Humber and Teesside region to the offshore carbon store. And so together with our partners, our job is to build and operate the transport and storage infrastructure so that it's safe, reliable and gives access to all potential users on a sort of fair and equitable basis. Um, so, yeah, we're investing in CCS and the hydrogen infrastructure, which we see as a, a long term commitment that will meet today's needs and facilitate the needs of future emitters um, in uh, as we move forward. Uh, you mentioned that this is infrastructure. I mean, for those who maybe aren't too expert in the space, I mean, we're talking kind of big pipelines, are we? Is that the, the, the core of it? Or am I being overly simplistic? No, no. So we're, we, we're responsible for the Humber Low Carbon Pipelines project. So that will deliver the onshore pipeline infrastructure in the Humber region. And our proposals will be to create that on for, onshore uh, network. Uh, the pipes will be underground and that will enable the Humber to transport captured carbon dioxide and hydrogen. Uh, and we've you know designed and optimised a proposed route to maximise access for potential users in both the north and the south of the Humber. And the pipelines are really important because they're going to connect major emitters, power stations in the regions like Drax or a new power station at Keedby, industrial users like British Steel and Scunthorpe, um, Equinor's proposals for hydrogen production at, at Salt End. So you'll see, you know, a network of pipelines for those potential projects. And then that pipeline will then go offshore and it will connect to our endurance offshore storage facility in the North Sea. Wow! So very much the sort of the the, the nuts and bolts of it, the underpinning foundations, um, or I suppose literally the foundations, to then enable the carbon capture projects and the hydrogen projects to tap into it. Exactly. Cool. And and I mean, would you are you also looking at kind of hydrogen infrastructure as well? I mean, there's there's talk of you know being able to transport the resulting hydrogen that hopefully is going to be produced, whether it's green or blue, um, around the region as well. Yeah, so the infrastructure um, is a, a, a parallel pipelines that accommodate both carbon capture and storage and then facilitates hydrogen to be you know, moved around the network and be connected to the relevant sites. So we're being you know, holistic in our thinking and our design. So there's absolutely within the structure the potential for hydrogen pipeline to connect SSE Thermal, Equinor's plans for hydrogen storage facility in Oldborough. And then we will have a number of above ground installations along the route so that we can do all the pipeline maintenance um, and we'll, we'll identify uh, where the pipelines need to be so that uh, then there can be future uh, emitter projects, whether that's carbon capture or, or hydrogen. And finally, how optimistic are you about the future of the sector and the ability to meet the climate goals that we've set? When I look when I look at the situation, I'm I'm optimistic for a number of reasons, broadly for the energy transition. And then when I look at carbon capture and storage, I mean, if you look, if you take a step back, we've already made significant progress in the UK. We've got a track record now of putting plans in place to reduce the carbon intensity of our industry and our sectors. And emissions in the UK have fallen by by more than 40%, more than any other advanced economy in the world, I think. So there's nowhere been more visible than in our power sector with half of our energy coming from renewable sources. But what, what I think in the context of this technology is we've got more political will and ambition uh, than ever before to get this done. 
And you can see that with the UK setting binding net zero targets and legislation, um, setting probably the world's most ambitious climate change target, cutting emissions by 78% by 2035. And then in the PM's 10 point plan and the energy white paper, uh, I think that starts to give real commitment and confidence to what needs to get done here for carbon capture. The way I look at it is that, you know, we should be under no illusion about the scale of the sort of challenge ahead and the energy system that we have today will be significantly different to the one um, we've had for the last 75 years. And to achieve net zero by 2050, we've got to be pragmatic and we've got to be able to redesign and rebuild the energy system whilst ensuring security of supply. So for me, that's like completely redesigning and rebuilding a car whilst you're still having to drive it. So we, we have to design and deliver a smarter, more integrated system, and we've got to enable decarbonisation across all sectors, and particularly industry and transport. Having heard from some of the companies directly involved in the Zero Carbon Humber project, I also wanted to catch up with someone who represents the wider business community in the region, which stands to benefit hugely from the investment these projects will mobilise, but that also needs to prepare for the new opportunities that are coming down the pipeline. So I spoke to Dr Ian Kelly, CEO of the Hull and Humber Chamber of Commerce. So Ian, you obviously represent uh, the business community as a whole across the region, businesses small and large. I mean, how aware is the wider business community of the Zero Carbon Humber project? Uh, Is it something that's kind of cutting through with business leaders who aren't directly involved and engaged with the project itself? Well, I think we're all much more aware than we used to be uh, as a result of global warming, climate change, COP26 in recent times, the ambitions and targets of our big companies in the area for uh, reductions to net zero. The discussions we were having were around what what Jim O'Neill, the former Conservative minister, called um, a functional economic uh, area for the Humber. But at that time, you know, sort of uh, climate change wasn't uh, preeminent, but now, of course, uh, it is. And that is the top agenda for quangos like the LEP. Uh, and uh, we work with them, uh, but also we obviously work with the businesses in particular. All the major businesses on this agenda are in the chamber, uh, and a lot of the smaller businesses are interested, obviously, in the supply chain um, and how they can do their little bit as well. Business leaders, to be honest, are a bit like everyone else in the country. We all have those who are uh, uh, very concerned about it, those who are more relaxed, uh, or those who are uh, a bit of a sceptic. And uh, what I would say is the Humber does have a higher proportion of manufacturing uh, petrochemicals activity uh, than many parts of the UK. Uh, And so that does give us a big cluster of activity, which makes us one of the dirtiest clusters, if not the dirtiest cluster in the UK, Um, uh, but also uh, in recent times has provided opportunities for us to be a a green beacon of good Mm. practice. So what do you want to see happen in the Hull and Humber region over the coming years? And, And what role do you think the Chamber of Commerce can play? 
I don't know whether you uh, have children or not, but I have three daughters and it doesn't sit with me comfortably to be involved in the muckiest cluster in Britain. Uh, but it does appeal to me if I and the Chamber and our members can help in any way in tackling climate change to make us an icon of green pioneering uh, activity, which can help uh, save uh, the world, if I'm not being too uh, grand, uh, in terms of the dangers of climate change. And so I think we relish the challenge and we're delighted uh, that the uh, bigger companies are now making that investment. We locally need to ensure that the supply chain works for them and that, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole energy combination is uh, a positive one as quickly as we can get it there. Well, that was a genuinely fascinating start to the series. I hope you've really enjoyed it. And of course, thank you to all of my guests. Dan Sadler, who's Vice President of UK Low Carbon Solutions at Equinor. Una O'Grady, Head of Hydrogen Development at SSE Thermal. Cordy O'Hara, President of National Grid Ventures. And of course, Dr. Ian Kelly, CEO of the Hull and Humber Chamber of Commerce. Now, you can join me again soon on the next episode to find out more about the Zero Carbon Humber project and the opportunities for local businesses. We're going to be hearing from the project director, as well as Graham Stewart, the local MP, and several of those involved in supporting the local business community, developing the supply chain and making the most of this unique and historic opportunity. We'll also hear from local residents and discuss some of their questions and concerns around the project, putting them directly to Equinor. Thank you for listening and I look forward to seeing you next time. countries with the ability to produce truly green products which really are associated with renewables, hydrogen and CCS enabled industrial clusters as much as anything else will find that there is an increased commodity value for them products and actually that they have an advantage over the rest of the world. So it's a great opportunity not just for the products but for well-paid long-term domestic jobs as well.